eventually we're going to get to Isaiah chapter 54. So if you want to find that in your Bible and get ready, we'll do that. For now, I'm going to try to do the impossible. Do a review of the first half of the Bible in 20 minutes or so. <laughs> you think I can pull it off, George? No, he's shaking his head no. We shall see. <laughs> At this point in the B90 journey, now you remember that there are many among our family here who have read the entire Bible or, or, or working on reading the entire Bible in 90 days. And those who have done so have reached the halfway point. Pretty much everybody. Some may be a little behind, some may, may be way ahead. But in a sense, when we get to the Babylonian captivity that is described in the Bible, where the people of Judah have been overrun by Babylon and taken away in Jerusalem and the temple, just think of it this way. The capital city of a superpower has been utterly abandoned and everything that all of its monuments and and uh, uh, houses of government and so forth, the religious centers have been abandoned. They, you know, so you go from being a superpower to that. It's a pretty traumatic and monumental historical situation. And it also kind of marks the beginning of the second half of the story, you might say. The new covenant is really the last word, but under the old covenant, there is a storyline that we want to review. We want to get to this point where having gone halfway through it, that we started to figure out some things. The whole reason for reading the entire Bible, at least in my opinion, is to have a greater understanding of the nature of God and God's purpose. Not so much purpose for your life or mine, but purpose. What? For example, we read in the very first line of the Bible, when you started this journey, the first line you read was, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And I'm gonna say, why? Why? There's, there's the reason for reading the entire Bible, right there in the first sentence. God created the heavens and the earth. Why? Why did God create the heavens and the earth? What we're going to do today is we're going to ask several questions and some of them we can answer, some of them we can't answer yet. But if we continue with this linear journey through the scripture, we may discover many of the answers we seek. And so I'm going to propose that sometimes when it comes to understanding our relationship with God, it's the questions we ask that supply us with the understanding we seek. I'll give you an example of what I mean. I see a lot of young people and, and uh, well, I see a lot of couples. I see a lot of people who may be couples someday. I don't know. I'm just looking at all of you and I'm thinking, when you were infatuated with your beloved, when the relationship was just beginning, didn't you ask a lot of questions? Didn't you? Where were you born? How many children were in your family? Where are you from? What kind of name is that anyway? Are, are your people German? You know, uh, you ask questions like, like, how do you, uh, how do you like what you do for a living? You know, you just, you, this discovery process. What's your favorite food, right? When we are dating, 
When we're looking for love, one of the things we just instinctively do is ask questions. When we want a meaningful relationship with another person, not necessarily a love romantic relationship, we will ask questions. When someone is new to the family of the church here, one of the things that I will do is say, so do you live here in Jasper? How long have you been around? You know, and what brings you today? And these are just ways that we can be more intimately connected with each other. And it shows a, an innate desire to know and be known. And so it's very logical then to read the Bible as this principal device that God has provided for us to, better, to be better known. And so it's very logical that in reading the Bible, we are getting to know our creator and we're asking questions. So we ask questions when we read the Bible and that's a good thing. The next question we ask, for example, is we're reading the Bible and we see that God created the earth and we wonder why God created the earth. What was God's intention? What was God's motive for creating the earth? And everything else that gets described in the process. But then the second line in scripture presents us with a weird contradiction that causes us to ask more questions. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So wait a minute. In verse one, God created the heavens and the earth, but in verse two, they're not perfect. There's something wrong with it. Well, that's weird. Why would God create it broken? Does that strike you as strange? Do you ask yourself that question? Well, there's this thing called the gap theory, you know, where people say there's something going on between those two lines, but we don't know what it is. Keep that in the back of your head for a moment. Because God then proceeds through the spirit hovering over creation to bring order to this chaos, this darkness, this roiling, boiling abyss, and, and this, this crazy sort of, you know, chaotic, volcanic nonsense, you know, there's like this crazy world and, and God sets land in the middle of it. And then God sets the day and the night and then God creates plants and creatures and, and God creates order in this sacred space. God sets apart a place in the midst of the chaos, calls it Eden or we call it Eden. And, and there God says it is good. But it begs the question, why wasn't it good to begin with? We'll see if we can figure that out. But we've already learned something about the nature of God. When God speaks, he brings order to the chaos. God intricately designed and created everything that exists. And we have the benefit now of over 2,000 years of living with the Holy Spirit, opening the treasure trove of God's creative knowledge to all of us. And so we know things that people didn't know when they were writing this book, but we know, for example, that the atoms, the cells, the neutrons, and the protons, and the DNA, and all these microscopic structures of every created thing are basically the same. And so God builds everything from the same basic elements. And then it says, God then makes the man, the human, 
from the dust of the earth. Well, no wonder. God uses all the same construction materials. He just works them in a different way. So what do we know about God? God's smart. <laughs> like, really smart. And God creates what is referred to as Adam, but for our benefit, it helps if we understand that the word is really the Adam. God creates the Adam, not Atom, but Adam. And what it means is God created humanity. That God created humanity and made humanity in God's own image. Okay, hold on a minute. So the next question I find myself asking is, is okay, well, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, as a kid who grew up in churches that had lots of Gothic paintings of God and things like that in the ceilings, you know, I, I was pleased to find out that God is not an old white dude with a beard down to here. However, it turns out that God, who created everything from the same basic elements, has created us much like everything else God has created. How many of you have watched children play? Right? Don't they remind you of animals sometimes? <laughs> Go to a school playground and watch as all the little girls sit like birds on a wire and chatter away at each other and all the little boys roam around in packs like dogs, right? Watch how the most debased, awful forms of humanity got kept in cages in places we call prisons because they just act like animals. And the highest form of humanity is something that is close to the nature of God. What's the difference between humanity and everything else that God created? The image that was imparted to them is the heart and mind of God. To have a sense of purpose and will like God. To have a choice either to serve God or to reject God. And so it appears then that the humanity that God created was given a unique soul and a unique uh, self-awareness. Now, God created all of that and said, this is good. And so God rested from the creative process. And then a strange and amazing thing happened. On the eighth day, you could say, figuratively speaking, God looked at the man and the humanity, you know, and, and said, gosh, there, there's still something missing. There's still something missing. And I, I believe, and I know this is hard, you know, because I've been through this a few times, but, but I believe that there were men and women in this human creation. But this particular thing that God did was unique. And it really tells a lot about what's coming as we make our journey through scripture and through our literal journey with Christ. Because there are parts of this Bible you're reading right now that we haven't fulfilled yet, that we haven't lived out yet. So there's more to come. But then on this sort of eighth day, God looks at the person, the humanity, and says, they're, they're still not complete. And so rather than create a perfect companion for humanity, from the dust of the earth, like the way God made Adam or the Adam, God takes from the side of the man while he sleeps the elements for the perfect companion. How remarkable 
Everything was made from the same basic stuff except this, this thing that our Bible calls Eve or the perfect companion for humanity. I'm leaving you confused on purpose because this is all about our critical thinking and asking questions about the one we love. What's the answer? Here's one for you. This place, this sacred place that God set apart apparently is accessible by a vile spirit, a vile creature that is someone created by God who is absolutely and utterly opposed to God. And so you scratch your head and you go, okay, wait a minute, God created it and it wasn't perfect. So God created a perfect place in the midst of the chaos. And now you're telling me that God created something that looks like a dragon that is utterly opposed to me, to God. What am I supposed to do with that? How am I supposed to reconcile the fact that God creates things that are good, but then some of those things go bad? Whoops, I may have given away something there. But keep with me here. I'm not offering you answers to all of your questions. I'm just offering questions so that together we can make our journey through the Bible and find the answers. Because we're not going to get as much out of reading the entire Bible unless we ask the questions along the way and then look for the answers along the way. Okay? So... This creature, this thing that God made that looks like a, 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 a described as a serpent in the scripture, but the root word nachash is a word for a unique kind of dragon-like creature. Whatever. That's only important because I promise you later on in the Bible, this nachash character shows up again. And that's why I want you to remember this because it's coming. Now, I promise you that it's going to pick up speed here real fast, but this, this root work that's happening in Genesis is so incre incredibly important because we're trying to understand God's purpose and God's nature. So now we're beginning to have this question, okay, well, what constitutes heaven and earth and what constitutes good and evil? Because now we have this, this balance or this, 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 uh, this struggle between good and evil. We have this one called Satan, which is a word that would be translated from hosatan, which means the accuser, that one that's accusing all the time. And this being is present in this sacred place where men and God can dwell, where humanity and God can dwell in harmony. And then, and then this creature says to this unique person, this, this unique companion called Eve, did God say you can't eat from this tree? And she says, well, God said we could eat from anything, just not from this tree. And so then you ask yourself the question, tell me you haven't asked this one. I, Cause I know you've asked this one because I've had people ask me this question. Why would God create a tree that has the knowledge of good and evil that he doesn't want God, the people to eat from, right? Like, why would God put it there? You know, it's like, why would I plant poison ivy in my garden, right? I'm really susceptible to poison ivy, so I don't want it anywhere near me. Why would I plant that in my garden? Just so I can prove to God that I'm not gonna touch it? So what we ask the question is why? Well, what if it turns out that there's an answer coming in the story? Because you see, the best interpreter of scripture is scripture. 
So bear with me for just another second. So this, this thing happens where this sacred person, this special, unique being gives into temptation, eats of the fruit of the tree they're not supposed to eat from. And then her beloved comes along and knowing that he's also violating the law, does it too in order to redeem her. In other words, they, they go out together. Kind of unique when you think about it. And once they're cast out because of their disobedience and for whatever reason, this makes it impossible for them to be in the presence of God in the cool of the evening. They realize that they have sinned and so they are naked figuratively before God. And so God covers their sin with the sacrificial skins of animals that they used to wander around in the garden with. Something had to die and shed its blood in order that they could be covered because of their sin. And now they're no longer in this sacred space that is perfect order amid the chaos. Now they're outside of it. Now here's the first sign of scripture telling us what's going on because the next thing that happens is God gets a couple of the big tackle, linemen, whatever you want to call them, a couple of the big, bad, heavy-duty angels. Puts them at the gates to this place and then equips them with a special kind of sword to protect the entrance. Right? You read this? So let's see if we've got this right. They were in the sacred space where they could be in the presence of God. There was entry into this space by a creature that is utterly opposed to God and is determined to destroy God's creation, chiefly the man or the humanity and the unique companion, and through temptation is able to author a certain form of destruction. And now the people are no longer able to be in the presence of the holy God and there are these massive angels with unique swords guarding the entrance. And I'm thinking if these people can't survive outside that space without God providing their skins and everything, then what do we Why would God put angels at the gates to keep them out? Right? I mean, he could probably have used some baby angels or some little angels. But no, it's because it's not the people that God is keeping out. So what I'm trying to establish here is, is that the Bible has made it very clear to us that there is a struggle, an eternal uh, cosmic struggle between good and evil, between God's perfect good and one who is perfectly opposed to God. Now you got to ride with me just a little further here and then we're going to hit the first hill and we're going to go right through the rest of it like lightning. Okay. Then we get to Genesis chapter six. And Genesis chapter six says that there were some really bizarre creatures on the earth amid the chaos. That these creatures were the result of fallen angels. Okay, wait a minute. Now we learned about angels because God put a couple of good ones at the gates and gave them big swords. And now we're learning that there are other angels who aren't good and they messed around with humans and created all sorts of strange and bizarre characters that roamed the earth. And God said, this is definitely not good. 
So God extends God's reign outside of this sacred space that God created to live in harmony with humanity. Now God's exercising God's authority over all of it. And God does something that is really beyond our comprehension in that God turns the entire ecosystem inside out. That's what the flood was. It was not, you know, like a lot of rain and it, the water was coming from under the earth. The water was coming from in the ether or the cloud cover over the earth. And, and it was a complete washout of the world as it was known prior to the flood. And the only people God preserved were the people of the family of Noah. And the Bible says to us that Noah's bloodline was pure all the way back to Adam. Why would the Bible tell us that? Because God was disposing of all of that impurity, all this strange and bizarre stuff that was happening while the world was in chaos before the flood. After that, God sets up a covenant relationship with a guy named Abraham. And through that Abraham covenant, right on through to Moses, a chosen people have been selected to be unique in all of creation because of God's particular devotion to them and God's particular covenant plan of restoration and redemption. In other words, God is going to work through these people a plan that gets things back to the way they were before the fall. The relational things. I told you I was gonna pick up speed real fast because I'm not gonna review the history of Israel. I don't need to. The history of Israel after the promised land is about people who were in a covenant relationship with God that was clearly defined where they had to do certain things and they could count on God to do certain things. And guess what? They blew it regularly. And so they rode this roller coaster throughout their entire history in the old covenant where when they were really on it and they were living in harmony with God and obeying God's precepts, man, God's glory was shown and they became a superpower. Not just a superpower because they had nukes or something. They became a superpower because they were God-infused as a nation. They were God's people. And then they would mess up big time. And this is, believe it or not, close to the end of what I wanted to share with you today because the fundamental thing that happened that we are now witnessing at this point in our reading of the entire Bible is a result of the one part of the covenant that God was the most grieved by their disobedience. And it was the violation of the Jubilee covenant. See, there was parts of this covenant that they kept better than others. There were parts of the covenant they didn't keep very well, but the critical element of the covenant with God through Abraham and Moses was the Jubilee and they failed utterly to keep that. You remember what Jubilee was? With Jubilee, all of us were charged with setting captives free. We were charged with letting our slaves go. We were charged with canceling debts we held against each other. We were charged with letting the land rest. Now, to put that in perspective right now, just think about it. What is your inclination to cancel a large debt that someone owes you? Come on, be honest. What is your inclination to set free someone that you depend on to help you maintain your livelihood? Um, 
in those days, the slaves were people that had, they traded their freedom. In other words, it, it was like not slavery in the sense that we think of American slavery in, in the South, but, but in the sense that people who couldn't generate an income on their own had the choice of basically indenturing themselves to others who could generate an income and what they got was room and board in exchange for their labor. So it was a way of life, except that that's how that business ran. Now we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this community and even in this church. And, and so I asked the question, you know, like if someone told you that in order to honor God, you have to take this going business that you have and shut it down for two years, how inclined would you be to do that? We already know what that's like because last year during COVID businesses were forced to shut down for less than a year and a lot of them died as a result. So the people of God were told to trust God with their livelihood. They were told to trust God when they cut loose unpaid debt, when they cut loose their workforce and when they cut loose the land upon which they depended for their sustenance. And they said, nah, I think we'll just let that part of the covenant go. Now they find themselves in captivity in Babylon and for 70 years, as scripture says explicitly, was to a year for each jubilee they failed to keep. And if you do the math, they failed to keep all of them. Why is that so important? Because we have a debt that we owe God because of sin. We are slaves to sin and death, actually. We are, we are people who never give it a rest. And God is saying, even to us, there's a jubilee coming for you that you did not earn and you do not deserve. But because I am so committed to this relationship, it will happen. It will come to pass. All right. So if you're tracking with me right now, then the entire Bible up to this point has been the story of, of the struggle between good and evil and the story of God's constant redemption of the chosen people. In other words, this, this special woman that represents this chosen people that probably represents something else when you get further in scripture, hint, might be capital C church. Well, God has this relationship in mind constantly, and it's always there. And that takes us to our reading of scripture and our conclusion. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 54, and we're gonna look at verses four to eight. And then we'll wrap this up and break bread together. Isaiah 54 at verse four says, fear not for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded for you will not be disgraced for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more for your, your widowhood you will remember no more for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord, he has, the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. See, God 
doesn't look at God's chosen people in the way that seems obvious to us through our human eyes. God looks at the chosen people in the covenant concept of marriage. That this relationship that God has created, starting with Abraham and worked its way all the way through to us, is always about God's commitment to this intimate and sacred relationship. Like someone that God has grafted from God's own side, as it were. We're part of God. We're uniquely created in God's image. And God just can't give up on us. Some of us, you know, have probably had experiences where we have wayward children and we probably have said there's not much we can do to fix what's wrong here, but yet we somehow just can't give up on them, right? It, it happens. I've seen people in broken marriages who just don't want to give up because it's, it, you know, we have in us this unique quality that is like God's in that we just don't want to give up on sacred relationships. And so we have in us a comprehension of God's mindset. And what God is saying through all the ups and downs and upheaval in the life of Israel, God's chosen people in the old covenant is that he can't give up on them. But sometimes love requires discipline. And sometimes cause and effect have to run their course. And then Jesus will come along in not too many weeks to tell you a story about a son who abandoned the father's house. And then after repentance came back and was embraced with open arms. This is about love. The Bible is a love story. It's a story about how God desires to have you back in his sacred place as his sacred companion. And as you read forward in scripture, you're going to see that the, during this inter, this, this part, during this time of, of human history where we are awaiting the fulfillment of things to come and yet we have such a great grasp of things that have happened, we are the, the we are the, the fiance or the bride to be. And while we wait for the coming consummation of our relationship with God as it was in the beginning and will be in the end, we have to choose, just as Joshua said, this day, whom you will serve, the flesh or the Lord. And Joshua declares, as I do too, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let us pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Now burn it upon our hearts. Transform our nature, we pray. For your sake, help us to choose every day to serve you and to long for that covenant relationship with you that you so desire to see completed. Bring us home, we pray. Amen. Amen.